This episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com slash doingit for a free 30-day subscription and a free audiobook of your choice. That's audibletrial.com slash D-O-I-N-I-T. Sir, for two weeks now I've been bald. We did everything to get my hair back. Nothing worked. At last, I tried this extremely dangerous mixture. It worked, but now my hair won't stop. My only chance is for this guy to keep on cutting. Please let me stay. I want to be educated, not just hairy. God damn it, baby, no, I ain't lying to you. I'm only gonna tell you one time. Welcome, welcome everyone to a very special episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. I'm Rob Schulte, producer of the show, and today I've got a fantastic bonus episode for you. Good friend of the show Ian Goldstein talks to Lucas Kaiser of Comedy Central and more. But before we get to that, I want to share something special with all of you fantastic listeners. An excerpt from my own personal time capsule. See, back in college at the University of Kansas... I spent a lot of time at the student-run radio station, KJHK. I was never an official DJ, mainly due to my oppositional viewpoints on all forms of authority, but regardless, I did guest host a few times. Now, the very last time I DJed for KJHK, I was offered $1,000, yes, that's thousand with a T, from a man named Al Siskelton. All Al wanted to do was talk about his upcoming music festival for five minutes. I figured, what's the harm? I took the money, had the conversation, everyone was happy. But subsequently, I guess I broke some sort of federal regulation involving terrestrial radio. Regardless, the clip I'm about to play for you still exists. So let's take a listen. Al Siskelton. I've never really been that big of a fan of festivals, and maybe you could, like, sway me. You know what they say. There's uh, 25,000 jam bands in this country. All of them are successful. And that's because there's 25 million jam band fans. Well, this this uh, particular festival I'm putting on in Indiana, it's called the Cosmic Hoedown. And where'd you come up with an idea like that? There was a festival in Colorado... And it was called the Cosmic Hoedown. And so I just took that, I just took the name. You know, one of the headlining bands, the Cheddar Riot, kind of what first got me in abyss, started managing that band. And there, you know, there's something. There's something there. I, I can't stand it, personally. It's horrible. But, but you, you manage know, them? Terrible music. Oh, yeah. They're very successful. Sort of a psychedelic jug band. Well, who else is playing? Uh, we got the Scoop Boys. Scored them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tangerini Nini, the table dance, uh, the Fonzies, very cool group. Oh, because of the historical character Arthur Fonzarelli. Who? 
So how many days is the festival? Usually you can get like a three day pass because it falls over a weekend. Yeah, this is a, this is a little longer than that. This is a six day festival, uh, one day of music, uh, two, two off, and then there's two more days of music, and the last day is uh, is a cleanup day. That's where the bands clean up their goddamn mess and uh, the hippies too. Really? Okay, so they're they're buying a ticket to stay and help clean the ground. I would say that's very forward thinking. When you when you buy a ticket, you also sign a contract. You're now employed underneath a, our production. The last festival you ran didn't go so well. Wasn't there like there was a cover up of some sort? What happened was there were a lot of bears at the festival. Oh, really? Like black bears? Uh, you name it. Black, brown, albino. That is a rare bear. There's a, there was a rare bear there, which was one of the bands playing as well. You know, a lot of festivals try and go big. They try and lure you in with things like Ferris wheels, because we all know how exciting a Ferris wheel is. Do you have mm-hmm. anything gigantic besides music like a Ferris wheel? Well, actually, what we got, we wanted to step it up a notch. We got a roller coaster. This is a, a full-length roller coaster. We bought it uh, cheap because uh, it was used from uh, the Mall of America. Oh, I love it. Got my ear pierced in the Mall of America once. Well, yeah, it's good for two things. Well, I can't agree with you more, Al Siskelton. Before we let you go, though, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Anything about festival culture or music culture that you'd like to go off about, it's all for you. Go ahead. Thanks, Rob. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, today is probably the best day you can start uh, start going out to festivals. And I say, hit them all. Get to get down to the Cosmic Hoedown, go to the Psychedelic Slop, and also uh, organize your own. Organize. It's easy. All I got was some some bands. I got the Cheddar Riot, you know. And then you you find some some desolate land. And you, uh, and you just advertise, and you're golden. And I've been doing this for, uh, well, this is my first festival. Have I told you about our Patreon page? We offer rewards for small donations. So check out patreon.com slash doingitwithmikesacks. Lucas Kaiser is a VP creative director for Viacom. He helps create and oversee branded content for Comedy Central, Spike TV, and the soon-to-be-launched Paramount Network. He's worked on Chappelle's show, he's written plays, and not only that, he's a pretty great stand-up comedian as well. Whether Lucas is producing a themed comedy show, organizing an open mic, or just helping others find spots to perform, he knows his way around the comedy scene. A few months ago, Lucas chatted with friend of the show Ian Goldstein for this exclusive Doing It With Mike Sachs interview. We do branded content uh, whenever brands want to be either in our shows on either of the networks or create stuff outside of the shows. It is my job to... Like, look at, you know, a 
a creative brief after the thing has sold and come up with like, what should this be exactly? Was this something you aim to do uh, or stand up more of your goal? Comedy writing is sort of the my background. Uh, I was a um, sort of improv uh, actor and sketch writer in both high school and college. I was I did comedy sports in high school. I'm from Wisconsin. Uh, which is where the, the home of comedy sports. I don't know if you know what that is. It is a short-form, competitive short-form improv theater, um, and it was started by some folks in Milwaukee. So I did that in high school, and then in college I did some UCB stuff and did uh, I ran uh, a college humor magazine at NYU called The Plague. Um, and then while I was there, uh, I ran some live shows, did sketch and stand-up, and I met... Uh, Neil Brennan, who was the creator of Chappelle's show, he did stand-up on one of my shows, and then I asked him, uh, as he got off stage, I was like, you're pretty funny, you should uh, give me an internship, and he's like, okay, and I was like, oh cool, that worked, which I later found out he gave an internship to everyone who asked for one, but then I had another show, and, I, and this was like, so this would have been my the end of my junior year when this first season of Chappelle show was on. Um, so I was like a little scared. I was like, oh no, this is not going to work out. And then the guy who did like the robot is this guy, Carl, who was our like, remember the robot? He did like robot dancing and a bunch of the sketches. Yes, uh, yes. So yeah. His name's Carl and he was one of like the set carpenters. And he, I was doing a show, I was doing like a weird character bit, like a weird like alt comedy thing at like a at an open mic at a place called Ultraviolet, which was on like West 4th Street and or West 3rd Street, right near like the NYU library. And they had like floor to ceiling windows. And I was doing like crowd work stuff. And I pointed at this guy outside and I started being like, you better, you like, I was making fun of him. Like, look at this guy over here. Like whatever it was, I was like in character. And he came inside and he like enjoyed what I was doing. And then after the show, he's like, oh yeah. And I'm like, I'm supposed to get this internship at Chappelle show. And Neil, da, da, da. and he's like, oh, I work there. I'll, I'll email them right now. And I was like, okay. Wow. Uh, and that was, I, it was like these two different corners that I hit them with. And then, um, in the fall, I was still didn't believe it, but then I got an email and then I did end up meeting with comedy central and funny enough, the person who was in charge of the interns then, I, I work with now. Wow, so, so this must have been, so you've been, it sounds like you've been with Comedy Central for probably, I guess, 12, 13 years, because, I mean, Chappelle's show started, what, I guess, 2003? Yeah, I, I started, I interned in 04, and then I worked as a writer's assistant on the show in 05 when, the, when he went to Africa. Um, okay, and, and what, what have you found in terms of, so it's, it sounds like before that you were doing a lot of improv, what have you found have been the biggest differences in terms of, I guess, what you enjoy and what, and, and what you feel more comfortable with in terms of stand-up and improv. Oh, sure. I mean, I still, and I still do improv. I did, uh, you know, I did UCB. I did all the levels at UCB, and I um, I enjoy it. I have a monthly show with a friend of mine where we just do, like, a you know, once a month I do some little bit of improv. Um, stand-up is cool. It's a lot different in that it is you. It's one person, and everyone has to pay attention to you, and you get to do whatever you want. Um, it's much more difficult. Like, it takes a lot more... Uh, attention and focus to come up with new material um, because improv I think the, the context of an improv audience is like they know you're making it up and I think stand-up audiences do think you're making it up but it's almost like and and when you go up and you it actually is quite 
easy once you've done stand-up long enough and you also have done improv you can go up there and riff and be funny and talk to the audience and be hilarious and it's basically like doing like when you do crowd work it's actually kind of fun and like if you're good at it it's really easy because you can pick somebody and you basically have an improv scene with them you know what i mean like and i'm good at um like sort of mirroring people's voices and physicalities that's just like a weird like thing i've done since i was a kid so that's like a really easy parlor trick like to copy their voice you know if somebody's like hi my name's greg you'd be like oh thanks greg and then like the audience always laughs you know or whatever it's like a thing it's an easy so like that's fun but then actually sitting down and wanting to translate an idea you think is funny to people is really hard um especially when they're like not immediately on board like like and that's a hard part of stand-up is like you know I, you know, and I go into an open mic. That's why those are important. Is you go and you try to communicate to a um, to an audience like something that they don't inherently find funny yet. I remember I saw a great uh, talk where Michael Che said it was kind of like, and I thought it was perfect. He said it's like going to a foreign country and trying to like you the, the stand up is like an american and the audience is like japanese people and you're trying to communicate right. like how do i get to the bathroom um and 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 it's kind of like you learn the language as you fail towards saying it correctly i was i think it was bill burr i was listening to him recently and he was saying uh when he was starting it's like he knew he was funny with his friends or outside of when he w wasn't on stage he knew he was funny but it was about translating that his comedy with his friends to the stage oh, and yeah. And I guess that's such a, that's not an easy process, I assume. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm like anywhere close to Bill Burr. Bill Burr is a, is a freaking genius, like amazing. And he's so good at personality and being, and he is like a natural and he still works very hard. You know, that's what's mm -hmm. insane. Um, but uh, it's just so fun. It's just so fun. It doesn't matter if you're the best or the Whatever. I mean, I, I like it a lot and I get a lot, I'm thank, you know, I, I get a lot of spots and I get to do a lot of cool shows and I think that's great, but I also just love doing bad open mics and I love doing, I love the process. You kind of have to love with stand up more than improv. I think you have to love doing stuff. You have to love sitting down at a piece of paper, writing something out, like rehearsing it in your head and then going to a place, thinking about it and then do like, you kind of have to be an obsessive about like, you know, the craft as opposed to the success. Whereas with improv, I think, you know, I think a lot of improv study is about getting closer and closer to having a killer hit rate on like how to be funny right away. And I think that like, like improv helps be how to be funny in a pitch meeting way more than stand up. But stand up is like, once you've pitched the idea, how do you sit down and write it? I think, I think those two things, I think if I was a young kid who wanted to learn how to like be good at the job of comedy writing i would say try both things and learn to like you know both improv and stand-up um if i was trying to pitch you as to how to like become successful at either i would say um figure out what you're good at and then just follow that thing but i think once you like like how do you get good at it versus how do you get successful i think oh, those are that's a more complicated uh you know conversation right and I, I think something i've been talking about recently just with uh different either comedy writers or people trying to just get into comedy is is the idea of how do you know if you're funny and i guess uh i guess a good barometer is something like stand-up where you're on stage and you 
pretty much know if you're funny or not because people will laugh. But I think the I, mean, I think when it when it comes to just writing in your room, it, I, it can be hard for people to tell am I funny or not because I you could so, laugh yeah. to yourself. So I'm wondering how how do you how do you do that type of thing? If you're trying if you're trying to write something, how do you gauge if it's actually funny? Like I think early on when I was a kid, I, and it's funny because my parents actually being in Wisconsin, um, you're so close to Chicago, so you're close to Second City and all that stuff, and a lot of the like founders of Second City, like my parents knew. Um, Paul Sills, right? That's the dude, the founder of Second City. Like, they knew him because he lived in Door County when I was a kid. And my parents owned a theater in Milwaukee that was, like, an alternative theater. So my dad was, like, friends with Willem Dafoe and all that. So I ended up taking – I did, like, improv classes when I was a kid. And I had a funny family and stuff like that. So you – you kind of know you're funny. I mean, I kind of always knew I was funny because peop- I would say stuff and people would laugh. You know what I mean? Like, that is a we- it's a weird thing. If you've never made somebody laugh, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. There are people who I know, I guess, who, like, if you've never ever made somebody laugh but you love comedy, I don't know how you would start to move towards wanting to do that other than like emulating things you like. I think that would be the way to start, right? Like mm-hmm. trying to copy stuff and that's how you begin. And then I think when you when you get good or when you understand like when you get good at writing, it's when you have been through so many performance situations where you've delivered those jokes like and you've delivered tons and tons and tons of stand up and improv jokes and you've been through all these scenarios and you've seen how how different ways that these jokes can go. And then that's when you start to become a little more confident. And of course there's like that's a whole lifetime, right? Like you can continue to get funnier and funnier and funnier um until you I guess get out of touch with your references and all that shit. But I think once you do, once you go through a lot of different performance um beats when once you've gotten those hours in, you could start to see when you sit down at your keyboard or your notebook or whatever, or your moleskin if you're a, a sad boy or whatever, um, you can figure out exactly, you can start to think about writing to your own voice. And I think that, and I, you'll never know what your voice is or whatever. People will be like, oh, like I've had people do impressions of me and there is like a, like of my stand up. People are like, like, you do a character when you get on stage. And I'm like, I do. I, 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 I try to just be myself, but I guess I click into a thing, you know? If you're a professional writer, you're just, if you're just by yourself, it's the idea of will other people get this is uh, it can be a constant question, I feel like. Oh, for sure. And I do think, though, the people who – it's funny because some of my friends who I've seen come up really quickly are the ones who ignored the idea of will other people find this funny, like, mm. the longest. Like, you know, seeing – like, he's not, he, he's not a superstar, but I think he's – you know, well-known at this point, you know, in the comedy circles, but like a Joe Para, he's a great comic. And like, he's a guy that pushed through people not getting what he was doing other than other comics to where it became like, this guy's awesome. You know, uh, Joe Firestone, love her. She's amazing. And I just remember like people, you know, she's always kind of been great, like especially at her own shows, but there were shows and and there are situations where, or conversations even where people are like, I don't quite get her. And then now I think you, you get her, you, you have to. And it's those people who ignored the idea of, well, should I change who I am for my audience? And I think I've always had my biggest strides when I've, you know, like early on a couple years in, I was kind of a storyteller. Like I told a lot of funny, like anecdotes. That's kind of how I got my way into stand up was that I had always been sort of a, I could tell funny stories about my family and 
uh, you know, two years in or so, I was doing stand-up at a show, and I got this compliment that really ended up being like a barb from someone where they were like, you're so good, man. You, you don't even tell any jokes. So then it was like, well, maybe I should read funny lists off a piece of paper. And then I would do that, and then that was funny. And then I was like, well, maybe I should try one-liners. And I was like bombing hard at open mics over and over again with one-liners until I was like, well, wait, well, what if I told them a little slower and like this? And then I started doing, and then I was able to do, I can do sets where I can do all one-liners. I can do sets where I can do stories. I can do, which is like almost like too crazy like I need to have some focus um, and I think now I more you know sort of stack my set but I think like Gary Shandling is kind of a good um, model for like if there's a little bit of absurd a little bit of him you know like he uses his own life as a way to jump into the absurd I think that's probably the closest model to my stand-up or was there ever a point in your career where you felt like you didn't have uh, like traction or you didn't feel like you didn't know where it was going, and you, you thought, maybe I have to get out of comedy or do something else. Yeah, I mean, I think I struggle with that stuff still. Um, whatever doesn't happen is my fault. Not every opportunity is going to be open to you. I think that's something that takes a, lot, a long time for people to get. Like, you compare yourself with your peers, and then you realize, I've still got a lot to learn, and like I have a great sort of sandbox to do it. Um, so I feel very lucky and there's been times, I mean, I'd say between like 06 to 09, I would say those three years were pretty dark. I, I kind of, I stopped performing. Um, I moved out of New York city to like Long Island. Um, cause my mom had moved from Milwaukee to Long Island, um, for a new job. And I actually moved into her like attic and, I, I kind of like went from like having been an integral part of like a major pop cultural phenomenon at Chappelle show to like living in my mom's attic and like, you know, like sort of stringing together paychecks and I wasn't able to really pay for anything. And I had no contacts or friends in comedy. And I was like, I wrote a play for a year about Mario and Luigi, like a comedic play. And I did a reading of it and the, it, it bombed. And people hated it. And I got all these, I had people fill out comment cards and they were like, this is the least funny thing I've ever seen, all this shit. <laughs> this was on Long Island? You yeah. performed this? Well, I did. Oh. No, no, we did. We came to the city. We came to like, uh, I rented like a studio space and I got actors to do the parts and we rehearsed oh. for like probably two months to do a reading. Um, but I really changed the script based on our rehearsals and we had a lot of fun in the rehearsals, but I just hadn't, I was so disconnected from what was actually funny to people. I spent a, a year writing what was essentially a like long day's journey into night parody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was like, what am I doing? Like I didn't know what I was doing. It's like one of the, and it was like, well, and I'm turning, you know, 27 soon, you know, like or whatever. Like that's a good way to waste your 20s is write a play for two years uh, about something that nobody wants to see. If anyone wants advice on how to waste your 20s, listen to that portion. I think it's good to have let myself feel that bottom and know kind of where I could go. And then once I started to do stand up or write and I became sort of like a junior writer, you know, I was writing like promos, you know, and, and, and I was very grateful for my job and I was very grateful for the opportunity to actually not just be on Long Island, but like be able to pay my rent and you know what I mean? Like and you become, you really enjoy your time doing things. And when you can enjoy them, I think you get a lot more out of 
what you do. And I think if you can capture that feeling without failing as much as I did, like I say, do it. I, you know what I mean? And I think there's people who you can tell are good at that. And those are people who are, you, you know, if you're not naturally like the funniest person, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be a successful person. It just means you have to continue to push yourself. Um, the failure will eventually become the things that make you good. Absolutely. But you have to be open your heart to trying things. How, how did you wind up bouncing back? Like you said, you went to Long Island, wrote, wrote the Mario and Luigi play and, and wound up living there. How, how did you wind up bouncing back and turning it around? I um, had a contact. Um, I had freelanced. So I had a contact from my Chappelle days um, and I would email her once every three months. And I had several contacts like, like that. I had a loose, so you know how like there's those people in your life where you have like these little, these little slivers of an opportunity, like my uncle knows a da 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 or whatever. And I, and I definitely like let those, a lot of those go away. But I, I had a, just a part of me was just like keep emailing her and being like, I hope everything's okay. Or I hope all everything's great, happy new year, all that. So every three months I would be like, and I would do a personal note and be like, hey, I uh, hope everything's okay. And eventually, you know, I was also like interviewing to be a blogger at Sony Music. And I went in for like 12 interviews. And, I, and then I also was given the opportunity to run Britney Spears' Twitter account. Because I ended up working in mu- music for a little while. Yeah, they were like, move into Britney's house. And I was like, no, thank you. Wow. Uh, how did that come about? I did some video stuff for this guy, Stu Stone, who um, is like a rapper from Canada. He's like Jamie Kennedy's childhood friend. And he was friends with some folks at Warner Music and like Sony and whatever. I don't remember what label Britney was signed to. But um, there were some people in, in like music management companies that were like, oh, this guy's funny. and he And he's also like, I had been writing a lot for blogs at that time. And I had written a little bit for College Humor early on um cobbled together stuff because i'd also like written for the national lampoon all this stuff so like i think they they were like this is that's good enough they were like she's crazy and this was like when she was at the height of her insanity and they're like this is these are good enough credits you can work for her and i was like uh cool i'll write i'll write from home and they were like no you have to move into her mansion and i was like that seems crazy to me Uh, but i kept contacting this person who was working who had worked in post-production for uh, Chappelle show and every once in a while and I did a couple small projects for her freelance for Spike that were actually like she like I was like yeah I can edit and yeah I can write and produce my own spots and then they're like cool and I had no means of doing that and they gave me like a budget to do something and I was I actually blew the air date like I totally blew it like I blew it like they gave me like a budget of ten thousand dollars which I ended up having to spend the entire thing like renting an edit facility and I basically quote-unquote produced something by hiring somebody to do work that I said I could do you know what I mean like I spent the entire money I didn't owe them money but I, I literally spent all the money on this like it was like and I was like, you know, whatever, a 24-year-old who should not have said yes to this. But it was, it ended up being okay. And it was okay enough that years later, we kept talking. And when I, when I was like, yeah, in like 2009 or so, maybe actually 2008 or so, 
she's like, we're actually looking for a writer. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll do that. And then it just clicked. And it was one of the 12 plates that I had spinning. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I, find, I find that interesting, though, that you got into your, you had that job and then you were in your 20s. And I feel like a lot of, because I think a lot of people my age, around 25, 26, or in just the late 20s at this point, uh, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's that feeling that you described, which is kind of just not really knowing where you are and kind of feeling and comparing yourself to the people your age who are doing much better and thinking, right. I'm not doing enough and I don't know what I need to do to, you know, do enough. Uh, so I, I, you've already given advice on that level, but I, but I guess what would you recommend for someone who's uh, in their mid to late 20s who are, who's kind of lost in that way? Well, don't beat yourself up for not doing anything. I mean, I, my advice to people who are my even my peers who are successful who talk about quitting stand-up, which happens a lot, is I say that's that's the right feeling. Okay, that's the right feeling. Hold on to that feeling like I want to quit and then keep going. Like, and if you really want to quit, then you quit. If you're too afraid to make it, if you, I think a lot of people are looking for someone to say, hey, you know what, kid, you got this, you got this, you know what I mean? Like, I think that is what people, a lot of people are waiting for approval, and I think that's like, you know, parental, or it comes from that whole, like, you know, wanting your professor to say, like, you know what, like, you're gifted, and I don't know if that moment's ever going to come, or when they do come, they don't feel as satisfying as you thought they would be, but what what will come is, like having made a bunch of stuff like that's the thing like even when I wasn't like you know blowing setting the world on fire when I was like really depressed and not doing anything I have I have probably thousands of pages of sketches that I wrote then like or like ideas for sketches and I also do like cartoons and I do, you know, it's like all this thing where I've just compulsively made stuff. And like during that period, when I talk about my dry period, which was like that 06 to whatever, 08 or whatever, my friend from Chappelle show had started a music library called Jingle Punks. Um, and we had, so I basically, during that period, I wasn't doing a lot of comedy stuff, um, but I have a music performance background and I made a bunch of like sort of fun I made like a bunch of like reality show like hip hop like stuff like I just made a bunch of I like kind of taught myself how to make music like compulsively and I ended up having I have over like probably 200 tracks in this music library and I was part of the founding of this library and I haven't made like and and I haven't like submitted new tracks to that library in a long time and I weirdly enough because that library became one of the more popular music libraries in the TV industry, like, I somehow lucked into, like, make, I now make something like between twenty dollars and $40,000 a year off of that music. But it's just old library tracks that people keep using in reality. Like, Keeping with the Kardashians uses, like, a bunch of my music, and I'm like, what? Really? That's insane. Yeah, like, and, like, SNL and Simpsons have used my music where I'm, like, that's a fucking weird dream where I'm, like, okay, like, that's cool. I want, I'm part of these cool cultural events and, like, I didn't... Is it, is it, is it, it's, like, you just use it as background music? Yeah, exactly, but I make money and I don't even know. And it's, like, one of those things where, like, you couldn't... Produce, I can't tell you, like, hey, how are you going to make money, you know, with library music? It's, like, I don't know, uh, be depressed for three years and do nothing <laughs> but make music while you wear your sweatpants. So it's, like, I, I don't know what to tell you, like... I didn't make any money off that music while I made it, but I make a lot of money off of it now. And it's this weird thing where I'm like, what? Okay. Like you can't plan 
anything other than like, you know, you have to like to make stuff. You have to you have to find the places in your life where when you sit down to do something, you don't stand up uh, until an hour later. Like, yeah, I wrote a bad play about Mario and Luigi, but I wrote a play. What I say is I tell people to write 15 sentences in the morning or before you do anything or before your day is done. Just sit down and write 15 disconnected sentences. Undistracted, you can do it by hand or on your phone or whatever. Write 15 sentences and then those are, and then move on. You can look back at those sentences later and be like, oh, that's a funny tweet. Oh, that's a funny idea for a stand-up thing. Oh, that's the first line of my novel. But, you, but when you write 15 sentences every day or whatever, those are just 15 sentences you're writing. You're not, there's no distinction or purpose for them because what it is is it's getting that start. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this. That's it for this week's episode of Doing It With Mike Sachs. Stay tuned for some exciting stuff coming this year. Once again, I want to thank Lucas Kaiser for sitting down and talking with Ian. You can find Lucas on Twitter at TheLucasKaiser. That's T-H-E-L-U-K-A-S-K-A-I-S-E-R. I want to thank Ian Goldstein for that awesome interview. You can find Ian on Twitter at Ian Goldstein Yes. Thanks to Max Yoder for playing Al Siskelton. Thanks to Mike Sachs for making this podcast happen. Mike has a new book coming out. Check it out at MikeSax.com or check out our podcast website, DoingItWithMikeSax.com. I'm Rob Schulte and I'm having a terrific year. You can find me on Twitter at Rob K. Schulte. That's R-O-B, the letter K, S-C-H-U-L-T-E. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next time. Without a shot of a